This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Hi, I'm Mark Elliott Stein, and this is the World Beyond War podcast. We're going to be talking to the author and historian Nicholson Baker about his new book, Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act. This is a book that explores the U.S. military's experiments with biological warfare, as well as the author's fascinating attempts to get the information about these experiments that he is legally entitled to. This is such an important book, and there's so much to say about it that we're going to spend two episodes on this interview. And first, I want to spend a few minutes to say hi to two people who are important parts of the World Beyond War organization. One is a familiar voice on this podcast, Leah Bolger, our president, who has been here twice before. Hi, Leah. How are you doing? Hey, Mark. The other person I'm excited to introduce is a brand new member of the team, our new social media manager, Alessandra Gornelli, who just joined last month. Hi, Alessandra. Hi. Great to have you both here. Both Leah and I were very involved in the process of bringing Alessandra on board, and that's one of the things we want to talk about. But first, why don't I just turn this over to Leah? Um, Leah, can you just fill us in on the various exciting things that we've been doing at World Beyond War? Sure. I'm always happy to talk about how, how well World Beyond War is doing. You know, we started a little over six years ago, and it was co-founded by David Hartso and David Swanson, two Americans, two white males also. Uh, but right from the beginning, we wanted it to, to be an international movement, and we knew how important it was to engage people from all over the world to put an end to war. And so we have deliberately tried to find people in other countries uh, to bring them into our board, uh, to have them sign our Declaration of Peace. And this is something I always am so proud to tell people, that we have 75,000 members from all over the world, in, it's in fact, 175 different countries. And so that is just, you know, the potential organizing power that represents is just blows my mind. So as we've become bigger and bigger, we have, uh, like I said, been making a deliberate effort to bring more international uh, input into the organization. And so to that end, uh, we have recently hired Alessandra, and she is our social media coordinator. And that is really exciting because the way we've been able to grow is through the internet. We have the internet now, and we have all these tools available to us through social media. And now we have an expert who can do that and help uh, take uh, World Beyond War to the next level. So I'm so happy she's on board with us now. Alessandra, you're definitely walking into a very busy organization. Um, I know you've hit the ground running. Can you tell us just a little about yourself and why you joined World Beyond War and what you're hoping to do here? Well, um, I always work in and with for NGOs. Uh, in my past experience, um, many I work for uh, NGOs that focus their work on climate change, renewable energy, and human rights. And so, you know, uh, starting working with someone who um, advocate to end uh, war, um, I think it was the next step because I guess um, human rights, climate change are so connected to war that, yeah, that was the best decision, I guess, for me, for my next uh, step in my career. You're saying NGO, that's non-governmental organization? Yeah. 
Um, just, just for anyone who might be listening, you know, we, we like to think we have a really wide audience and some people might, might not know what NGO is. Can you tell us where we're speaking to you from and, and tell us about where you're based in the world? Well, currently I am in Italy because I'm, I am Italian, uh, but um, usually I, um, I will be in Amsterdam where I live um, because, you know, I just love uh, the city, such an international place, so full of, you know, energy and it's just a great place to live. Cool. Leah, are there other things that we can just talk about that we're up to? Sure. Yeah, this is kind of exciting. Uh, you know, in these days with the pandemic, it, it's a little bit harder, I think, to raise money. And that's always the, you know, the, the real problem for any nonprofit is raising money. So um, I had this idea of having kind of a, a, a way to uh, people to donate their time instead of donating money and then uh, kind of selling those uh, services that people could provide, for instance, cooking lessons or or um, or yoga lessons or something like that, yeah. yoga classes. So uh, we're, we're launching this thing called the Skills Exchange, and there are I think forty different things uh, that that are for sale, uh, and, it, and it's a way for uh, for people to contribute to World Beyond War, uh, either by providing their time and their and their skill, or purchasing that time that that skill uh, that class, and and uh, and helping us financially that way. So yeah, on our website you can find the skills exchange and find out all the different things. I personally am planning on taking the knitting class because <laughs> um, cool. I've tried myself to to learn how to knit, and I I can't even get the yarn onto the needle. So I'm I'm really <laughs> I need some help there. Uh, yeah, so that's one thing. We're in the middle of our our second of four online classes the uh, environment class and uh and we're offering for the first time this fall a six-week online course about world war ii and you know world beyond war was founded on the idea that war is never justified and people always ask you yes about what about world war ii that was justified right and so we this class is going to explain why war is never justified even when hitler is the enemy and I think it's fascinating. I think it answers that question uh, that people always ask. And uh, anyway, I'm really excited about it. And I think uh, people will really get a lot out of it. So that's coming up this fall. Thanks for explaining that, Leah. And um, it is interesting that Nicholson Baker, the author we're talking to today, has written extensively on this very topic as well. So hopefully some people who are listening to this will be interested in, in that course, which is coming out. I'm curious, Alessandra, as a new arrival, how you're feeling about the mission of, of working with an organization with the really challenging task of addressing the entire problem of war. How has it been and how do you feel about taking on this challenge? Uh, well, it's extremely exciting and interesting uh, because what I notice, even when I you know post uh, online tweets, um, it's great to see the passion of people that interact with us and with our content. So I guess it's, it's a great, great, huge challenge, as you said. Uh, but the great thing is that the majority of people support this cause. And what we really need is just to kind of educate the rest of the people and, you know, show why really hand wars and why wars are not the answers like never so it's a challenge and i think it's exciting just because it's it's, it's a challenge 
you know, I'm really glad that we are introducing you so that people who will see the work that you're putting out on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook is not is not from a faceless, anonymous voice, but is from a, a human being who is in touch with us on a regular basis. You know, we take social media very seriously, and we're glad that you have a lot of background in it to to bring to us. So with that, I think we can go right into our interview. Leah, any any other um, big items we meant to discuss here? Well, something that I'm surprised you didn't mention, Mark, is that we are going to be launching our new website very uh, yeah. soon. <laughs> and uh, Mark has been deeply involved with that. But it's it's I've seen a preview. It's very, very cool. And uh, so please check check our website out. Thanks for mentioning that. That's actually what I'm spending about nine-tenths of my time on. And the podcast is is the 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 other tenth. So um, okay, with that, thank you, Alessandra and Leah. This has been great, and we're we're we are hoping to um, include more updates from the organization in our podcasts, just to make it a little more interesting. So um, bye, Alessandra, and bye, Leah. Thank you. Bye. So long, Mark. And we'll talk to both of you again soon. Welcome to the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, and this is a very special episode because we're here with the author of an important new book, Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act. And the author is a person I admire very much and am very excited to be interviewing, Nicholson Baker. So hi, Nicholson. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you, Mark? Great. Thank you for having me on this um, podcast. I'm really happy to be here. I should say I'm I'm excited for every guest we ever have, and you know I I love every episode we've ever done of this podcast. But this is a special one because Nicholson, to the extent that I've ever had a list of favorite living authors, you are definitely near the top of that list for me, and that's very much so. And that's not only for your writings about history and war but also your very inventive and original fiction, your novels, and your essays about little-known topics like literary and cultural archives, which you have pointed out are often threatened. And your calling attention to that makes you, in a way, not just a political activist, but also a cultural activist. Well, my gosh, thank you so much. Oh, for sure. I I could go on. I haven't even talked about your literary criticism and your book about John Updike. I mean, I'm 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 a big fan, and I'm not ashamed to say so. But I I also want to say your words have had a very serious impact on me because your 2008 book, Human Smoke: The Beginnings of World War II and the End of Civilization, and your 2011 essay, Why I Am a Pacifist, were really major steps for me, on my own ladder towards anti-war activism. Mm. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that when I began reading your essay, Why I Am a Pacifist, I was not yet a pacifist. And by the time I finished that essay, I was a pacifist. Oh, my God. That's so <laughs> moving. Thank you for saying that. 
Well, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, you know, these, as you know, these are topics that don't get written about a lot. And the fact that you calling yourself a pacifist in 2011 was, was a shocking and revolutionary thing that I think you took, you took a lot of criticism for as well. Well, so. I certainly, I, I it was, certainly was, uh, as part of Human Smoke, it was a, it was a controversial book and it was angrily attacked. And I think it was voted the worst book of the year by some, some place. I can't remember if it was the national <laughs> review or something, but, um, <laughs> I, I think it hits people differently, and also that it takes time sometimes to come around to certain things and see that certain things are reasonable. Um, I know that I was not a pacifist, you know, at, at, in my twenties or even uh, really in in my early thirties. I mm -hmm. I learned what was right, what what made sense from my wife, who was a pacifist, and she was a pacifist partly because she's very smart and understands things, but also mm -hmm. because her father was uh, in the Second World War and was went through training and came out of that war a pacifist. And so there are life events and, and just cumulative sort of tidal changes that lead to a new way of looking at things. And um, we, we all go through them at different phases of our life. Yeah, and I would also say there are barriers that we need to get past. Mm. In some sense, I was yearning and aching to become a pacifist for decades. And really the service that your work did for me was making it possible by very methodically sort of just deconstructing the very weak arguments for the effectiveness of war in solving problems and that you just sort of one by one ticked off the various myths. And I, I should also say that at World Beyond War, we are very much about busting these myths, the mm -hmm. myth that war is beneficial, the myth that war is necessary, the myth that war has ever helped a victimized people more than it has hurt them and more than it has caused more trouble for other victimized people. So yeah, I, I think it's that you are actually methodical about it, which for me allowed me, allowed me to, to move past these barriers. I think possibly it's not only your imagination, but your organization and your focus in these books, you know, that I think is so effective. Let's jump right into your new book because your new book is, is so important and so relevant and so timely. And I imagine it will also be controversial and will also be voted worst book of the year by, by you know, the, the, same, the same types of people who are offended by any sort of unusual ideas about, about the meaning of empire or war itself. So let's talk about Baseless. Let's first talk about your method in this book. Sure. This book is written in the form of a diary. Tell me if I have this right. It's your diary of attempts to get information about past activities of the CIA, especially involving germ warfare. And we're mostly talking about the decades immediately after World War II and the 1950s, the Korean War era, the Vietnam War era. You are trying to get information that you are legally entitled to via the Freedom of Information Act. And it is both a first-person chronicle of your attempts to get this information and a, a sharing of this, the information that you get. Right. So, well, uh, that's very that's all very true, Precy. It's a, it's a information that was with. I mean, the, the the original impulse came 
to write it as a book about the Freedom of Information Act came because I submitted a, a request for 21 documents to to the National Archives to see, and they were Air Force documents. Um, mm -hmm. So they weren't technically CIA documents, but this was a period when the Air Force and the CIA cooperated very closely. So it's impossible to say what they are, but but they are documents that are controlled by the Air Force, but they are housed in the National Archives. And um, there are thousands and thousands of documents that have undergone this process, which is that they were in a file folder, and then somebody reviewed them at a later date when, when a whole bunch of things were being declassified, usually mm -hmm. 30, 40, 50 years after the original document. And the person thought, oop, that's a little bit uh, sensitive, and would fill out a form. And it's a sort of a yellow, stiff piece of card cardstock saying, mm -hmm. withdrawn, uh, this is uh, this document is withdrawn and has the numbers on it and the date and the initial of initial of the reviewer and it and the document itself is taken from that file folder and put in a different file folder in a different box in a special place of the National Archives in College Park, Maryland that is called a SCIF, a sensitive compartmented information facility. And those places mm -hmm. are only accessible to people with security clearances. And so I made the request for some, just, I just took, I took 21 of them. I could have asked for a hundred or 200, but I, I just happened to ask for these particular ones in 2012. And years went by and I asked again and I, the, you know, correspondence. So the, basically the reason I wrote the book was because I really got tired of waiting. I mean, what does it do to you to wait to just see the basic raw material of history from 1950, 1951? Um, mm -hmm. when, when you can't look at it, uh, how does that affect the effort that you're trying to make to understand the past? Right. Like you, you really invite the reader into your process. And, you know, one thing that I, I found enjoyable is every once in a while you you meet one of these, um, I'm not sure what to call them. The word bureaucrat sounds unfriendly, but one of the, there are people who right. are employed by the government. Who, and let me make sure I understand this right. Their job is to respond to people like you and that's their main job. Yeah. Or, yeah. And they're nice job. people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I think at one point you get a, a phone call from somebody asking for a clarification. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was, I, I suddenly, you know, I'm looking at it and it says, I, I don't remember if my iPhone said CIA or if it or didn't, but it was just, hello. And the guy said, I'm so-and-so from the CIA. And I just want to know, did, you know, did you mean this date or that date? And I'd actually made a mistake on the thing. And I, I, I was so grateful. Now, does that result in the actual disclosure of the information I was seeking? No, I mean <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't because the the yeah. wheels of the wheels of of disclosure move so exceedingly slowly. We're counting in eons and not and not years. We're talking decades, and right. so um, that's the well, part of the that, that really that's the part that has to change. I think. But of course, it's it's not just the the march of time. It's the fact that there is a desire at some level of government to conceal to keep this information concealed. In other words, our government both legally permits you to see this and also allows the parties holding information to do various things to delay it indefinitely. 
And right. that's, that's what you chronicle. And, you know, back to the, these individuals who you are communicating with, I really liked it that you were, you saw them sort of as on your side. In other words, there's, there's the CIA holding information. There's Nicholson Baker requesting this information. And the, the go-betweens are these uh, semi-anonymous agents of the, of the government who are actually trying to help you. They want to help you and are doing their best to help you, but maybe are not allowed to send the information. Well, it's very hard to know. I mean, I think that the, the basic approach in doing any kind of history is to go down to the atomic level of single human beings. And that's what I try to do in Human Smoke. Who are mm -hmm. the people making a decision on a given day about something, a, a bad decision or a good decision? And in the case of of people, the person that I know best is not at the CIA. He's um, David Fort, and he deals with the frustration of being in the middle. He's the National Archives uh, Freedom and what what is he called? A FOIA coordinator. Basically, he's the guy who is the middleman between all of these government agencies and people like me, historians, hundreds mm -hmm. of historians who think. I would like this. And they file a freedom of information request or something called a mandatory declassification review request to the National Archives because of this quirk and this strange feature of America, the American system, which is that uh, documents are released from these agencies like the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, the Homeland. They're all released to the National Archives but then the National Archives can't release them to its users until right. it, the, the, the originating agency goes through a whole re-review process. So it just introduces this enormous delay. And, um, and for somebody like David Fort, it's, it's hard because people like me write these emails. I mean, I, I tried to be polite because I like him, but it's frustrating. You know, why is it seven years? Why is it so long, well, you know, yeah. that's a long time. And, uh, and he says things like, you know, it's just, I'm sorry. It's just the, these, we're waiting for these agencies to get back to us. And, and the other really mm -hmm. weird thing is, okay, these are, tw these air force documents, uh, you know, first of all, why, what does it mean that a document is deliberately held back? It's a, that's a crucial piece of information. Mm -hmm. If you have a whole series of boxes and only, let's say, one one hundredth of the pieces of paper in those in those boxes are held back. That's a piece of information. That means somebody went through all those pieces of paper and decided that these were the sensitive ones. So what we know is that in what way they're sensitive, we don't know. But we know that they're somehow were important enough that somebody took time out of his or her day to fill out a form saying access restricted. And remove those documents. So, uh, but we and we know the exact location of them and that they exist. Right. So this is all precious, precious knowledge. But we can't actually see the document, which is, of course, what we would like to say. But so, what I am asking for is to see the actual document. Failing that, to see a redacted form of the document and to mm -hmm. see it in a timely fashion in accordance with the Freedom of Information Act, which says that the agency should respond with all, I can't remember, it's all all due speed or something like that. 
But yeah. it, but but the problem is one of the problems, an interesting problems, is that each document has uh, attached to it these things called equities, and an equity is um, uh, some sort of connection with a particular agency. So let's say this is an Air Force document. The Air mm-hmm. Force has equity in this document in that it actually. It, somebody employed by the Air Force wrote this memo. Okay. And this, in the memo, in, in this case, let's take a typical memo from this is a memo that I asked for, and I know who the memo was from and who it was to and the date, and I know that it was indexed under biological warfare, um, under bombs and ammunition in the old National Archives filing system. So I know, or, or, or uh, Defense Department filing system. So I know a fair amount about it. I know who wrote it and who received it and when it was sent. And <clears throat> sometimes I know the topic, but often that's suppressed. Mm-hmm. And I know that these people, what they, uh, then through other documents, I know what these people are interested in. I know that the person who, uh, received the document was somebody who was very interested in this thing called the feather bomb, which was a, a, a bomb that was developed to um, basically destroy the Soviet wheat crop and also possibly the Chinese wheat crop using feathers that were dusted with a certain fungus of wheat. So I know that this is, you know, I know that this is something that is feeds into what I'm interested in, but also um, apparently, there are other agencies with equities in this document. Equity meaning they are also connected to it, not just the Air Force, right. but the Army, because the Army was involved in the research into these kinds of weapons. The Army ran Fort Detrick, which was back then called Camp Detrick. So they're involved, and also the CIA, because the CIA was funding the Army's research into the feather bomb. So we have three agencies, all three of which are equity agencies in this one document, which means that David Fort's job is, to, in order to get that thing declassified and sent to uh, me, mm-hmm. has to then make his entreaty to three different agencies, all of which have three wow. different declassification yeah. teams and three different schedules and three different levels of uh, reticence about releasing anything. And those agencies can't be told to me. I can't be told that this is being held up by the Uh army or by... Okay. So it's just a bizarre situation where a known document can sit in a file in a public place, which is the National Archives, and everyone can know that it's sitting there. and, And I can go to that National Archives building for five years looking at other documents, which I did, mm-hmm. and yet that document, which is only a matter of some yards away from me, will never be shown to me. You know, it's just so, yeah. so strange. And, and I know the law that, says yeah. that you have a right, right? Yeah, the law which was passed in, well, one of the problems, of course, is the law, the, the document was written, this one, you know, we're talking about was, was 1950, right, right at the moment mm-hmm. of, the Korean War, but the Freedom of Information Act, I think it's 1965, Mm -hmm. the congressman, Congressman Moss, started the process of getting a Freedom of Information law passed in 1955, but it took him 10 years. 
So we're talking about a law that came out in 1965. And think of all of the government people involved in, in secret programs before that time. Right. They, they did these things thinking that the world would never know what right. they done, right? So then, it, mm-hmm. so then it comes out, and then there's a tremendous scurrying and effort devoted to the destruction of records and the purging of people's active memories, you know, so that they will yeah. not, so that these secrets will be preserved. And that's, we're still dealing with the fact that all of the 1950s was just thought to be perma-secrets, you know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's not perma-secrets. Now we can make these core samples into this frosted residue and we find things you know and 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 yeah. and that's what happened during the golden age of the freedom of information act which was in the 70s and and early 80s we found all kinds of things and there were amazing books written based on the documents that were released as a result of the power of this law mm-hmm. um, and then the reagan administration changed the rules and a lot of documents then became inaccessible again and 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 we're still dealing but all of this feeds into the the actual reason that is important is not just that we want to see any random document it's that this is the crucial history of america's secret wars and this is what has resulted all over the world in destabilizations and interventions and we still are piecing together the history of all of these really mistaken military interventions bit by bit, you know, with insufficient knowledge. And we, in order to learn from our mistakes of the 50s, we have to know what actually happened. Right. Um, And so that's why it seems important to me to change the rules about the Freedom of Information Act so that people can can see what they actually have. I'm guessing this is the first first person narrative book published about somebody's attempt to work with the Freedom of Information Act. So you're shining quite a light on it. How do you think your book will be received in these departments that you've been dealing with? I, I, I'm guessing you gave a heads up to this David Fort and other friends of yours who, who yeah. people you to know. I think that people at the National Archives have been frustrated with this situation that they're in, this middleman's pit position mm-hmm. for a long time. And what they would like is more power to declassify things themselves yep. without going back to the originating agency once they've taken jurisdiction of the document. So I think basic, I, I wouldn't want to speak for any particular person, but I think there's a, a strong feeling in the National Archives that there's way, way too much of this delay and declassification. And it, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the only reason that it's so incredibly slow, it doesn't have to do with staffing, with uh, money or anything like that. It has to do with the fact that the CIA in particular, but other agencies too, the CIA's, what it owns, what it produces, its product is secrets. It, it is right. holding onto its, the secrets of its past ill-advised actions because holding onto those secrets allows it to survive. And I think well, if, the, if the entire gigantic pomegranate of mistaken madness that the CIA uh, engaged in was open for all to see all the documents declassified, and let's assume that some of them that were destroyed would come back to life. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that, that people would say, that's horrific. That's terrible. That's not right. 
that was wrong. In 1953, you did that? In 1961, you did that? No, that's not right. Of course, because we're, you know, and so that in order to keep, in order to keep people from doing that, they're just simply sitting on everything. And every so often things just go away. I mean, I, I, one of the things I write about in the book is this guy comes into work and his job is to feed pound after pound of, of documents into the incinerator that had to do with the CIA's uh, drug experiment program. And for somebody who cares about history, that's, that's just a painful <laughs> thought. Right. Right. Um, I wrote down a couple of quotes or several quotes as I was reading this book. One of them is, secrecy is the refuge of the incompetent. So that's your sentence, and I think it's a very good one. Is it my sentence? I think it's. It may yeah. even be. Oh, I think it, it may is. even be my my quoting of the Moss FOIA committee, isn't it? Ah. Or, or I, I, it you, may, may, you may be right. I, you know, when I go, <laughs> the reason I think that is because, as with human smoke, I think it works better if you allow the people who are on the ground at that point, moment in time, whatever time you're writing about, to be mm-hmm. this speakers of the position that you feel is true. I certainly believe that secrecy is the refuge of the incompetent. And I believe absolutely that this book demonstrates that there was tremendous bumbling, yes, <laughs> you know, violent bumbling that happened all over the place in the 50s and, and, and well, early 60s. But I don't but- think that I, I, I think I, I maybe did I, I, you, you may be right. I can't remember. You may be right. I mean, basically, my method was I'm, I'm reading your book. Mm-hmm. Um, off, you know, reading. I, basically, it, it is a, it is a book that is intense to read for reasons we'll, we'll get into in about a minute. Because mm-hmm. now I want to talk about germ warfare. So I'm, I was basically reading the book, you know, maybe for a half hour at a time, scribbling down notes. So I just, I see, I scribbled down those those seven words, but I did not know who right. said it. Well, there, there's a, the one that I liked quite a lot was um, by Samuel Johnson. Let's see if I can find it. He says, where secrecy or mystery begins, vice or roguery is not far off. Huh. And then the third one, the third of the quotes that really, the second is Samuel Johnson. The third is from my, my man, my Joseph Pulitzer. And uh, Joseph Pulitzer, and this is how this all began, because it really began with my in, in entanglement with American newspapers and everything. And right. we'll talk about that. But Joseph Pulitzer said somewhere, there is not a crime which does not live by secrecy. Get these wow. things out into the open, describe them, attack them, and sooner or later, public opinion will sweep them away. And that is so absolutely on the mark. Wow. That all you need to do is actually get the specifics. That look at these videos that people see of of cops doing unthinkably awful oh my things. God, yes. You know, yes. it, it, when if the if the if the video, which is equivalent to the document or equivalent to the actual moment, if it's not there, then it can always be paraphrased in a way that makes it sound like that wasn't what oh. happened. But if you Boy. have the evidence in front of you, public opinion changes and that's why you need that's why these records these videotapes of things ha- happening you know a few months ago or or documents about things happening 70 years ago are so crucially important I'm so glad you brought that up because you are also like me you you are fascinated with the internet and with internet culture mm-hmm. um, you are as I am a Wikipedia editor you've written about YouTube recently 
we have to realize that if George Floyd's murder had not been caught on a phone, if that video had not been taken, and there are a hundred other cases like this, there would have been no outrage and there would have been no awareness. We would not have had that proof. And that's because Steve Jobs invented the the phone camera. Right. Well, and and you, but even here, you notice they released a clip from a different source, not from a police source. There was, there was a cop that, that had a, I guess a body cam going or something and they released some footage. And it was very eerily for me, who spent my life staring at these blacked out and whited out pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. The, the, it was, the clip was of a cop talking to, I, I think it was talking to George Floyd himself, but may have been to other people around. And they had blacked out the people who were moving around the camera. So there was the same kind of feeling of redaction, but the redactions mm-hmm. were happening in a moving clip. <laughs> Wow, video yeah. clip and it so it was so frustrating to think that you know we go through all of this struggle and and you actually have video footage of something that is one of the most explosive videos certainly of this year but of many years you still we're not allowed to see right. what is in the video because somehow there's this feeling that that it's so desperately important i don't know what to preserve something to preserve the idea that a bad thing that inconceivably bad could happen in this country it happened it happened so you've got to face up to it all the body cam footage has to be declassified immediately and put mm-hmm. up on the web so that on the whatever police website or whatever it is so that people can see and make their own decision about what happened. That's what democracy is about, actually, is that is that an informed populace is allowed to make its own decisions. And if you have redaction, you do not have an informed populace. Here's one last quote. And then after this, let's start talking about germ warfare, which is really the, <laughs> okay. the sadder and more tragic part of this book. But the quote that I really liked is, it's disgraceful that in 2019, People who want to write about momentous world events should have to pick through broken pot sherds of redacted documents as if they were dealing with an ancient civilization. Yes. So, yeah, I, yeah. I like your evocation of an ancient civilization because, I mean, are we, are we really going to let people 5,000 years from now, assuming there are people in 5,000 years, are we going to let them find out what we did yeah. without us knowing what we did? Yeah. Um, it's, so. it's, it is, it feels, there is an effect also that redaction has. Um, it, when you look at a document that has been dealt with by um, the, whatever they're called, security coordinators or something at the Air Force or the CIA, or really Homeland Security, FBI, they're all the same, and they have blacked out areas all over them. It has this effect that is over and above the fact that information is being kept from you it makes it feel as if it is from a different civilization that it's mm, it is yeah. that is very very far away from us because this is something that just happens to your mind when you can't read everything it does become like a cuneiform tablet or or some sort of scroll from far off that you can't comprehend that is mm-hmm. lost in the mists of time in fact if you then see the actual document and i've been lucky enough in one major case to, and we can talk about it later, to, to see the, to have dealt with the fiercely, ferociously redacted version for a long time, and then to get the actual clean version at last. And there's just 
when you read the clean version, my God, it's in English. It actually makes sense. It uses words that we understand. It's not from some ancient, strange world. It's from Washington and you know, right. Washington in 1949. <laughs> you know, it's it's using the same language that they used in the movies in 1949. It's part of our culture, and it's and it's it's kind of a miracle that that that, that has this effect of distancing us from our own past. Mm-hmm. Let's let's dive into the past now because um, this, like I said, the reason I was reading your book in. Th- 30-minute increments is because it's upsetting. It's very Mm. upsetting. Mm. We're talking about germ warfare carried out as a person who has never had any option but to be a citizen of the United States of America. We're talking about germ warfare carried out on my behalf by taxpayer funds that is designed to do horrible things and in some cases did do horrible things. And we are also in this book learning about the the human beings who are highly flawed and highly human people. I mean, in many cases, we feel sorry for them. So I'm actually, I'm, I have so much to, to, I want to talk about germ warfare. I'm kind of touching on all the different things at once, but let's, let's just start with like the concept of a bat vector bomb, which is certainly a three word phrase I'd never heard of before. So you mentioned bat vector bomb that, that sent me off to Wikipedia as your book did hundreds of times, you know, to, to find out more about <laughs> yeah. what you're talking about and learn that, yes, they actually outfitted live bats with exploding suits. These are small bats, I presume, so that they could stuff them into a bomb. Tell me if I have this right. Drop the bomb over Japan, which had a lot of, this was World War II era, mm-hmm. I believe, Japan, mm-hmm. which had a lot of wooden buildings mm-hmm. because this was a good way to burn down wooden buildings is to have these bats who are wearing explosive suits. Mm-hmm. They will shelter under a house and then set the house on fire. So I'm thinking the poor human beings in the houses, the poor bats. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I know, know that I, 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 one of the things that kept coming back to me and why I wanted to do it as a journal is you, when you read about old research and old experiments, it's so often just a re- record of the death of experimental animals, you know, monkeys and, of course, guinea pigs and, and rats and dogs and cats. And it's just a, it just wears on you this, this, this uh, and tremendous effort to perfect ways of killing human beings by killing enormous numbers of animals. I mean, it's just actually, it's so painful and so wrong. I mean, of course, you, there's another, you know, if, if, if you're dealing with something where you're trying desperately to find a vaccine and you're trying to better things, you, there's an argument that at least can be made. But if your effort is to try to perfect a new way of killing people by seeing which of these animals can be used to make the disease more virulent and more easily transmitted, it's just, you know, it's just a mistake. It's wrong. This is what I ran into over and over again, is that the people involved in one aspect of of military research had been there previously. And, and a lot of this stuff that I was dealing with about the 1950s and even the 1960s all began in World War II. In World War II, Earl Stevenson worked for a giant government enterprise that was developing the atomic bomb and napalm and everything. But one of the one of the Office of Scientific and Research Development, I think was the name, one of the things they did was they wanted to outfit these these little bats with napalm vests and have them fly and perch in, in wooden houses and, and 
burst into flame, and that was thought to be a good way of burning Tokyo down. But the guy who was involved in that was Earl Stevenson, and he was, in the period that I was writing about more, was the head of research or something like that at Arthur D. Little, a consulting firm that was in Cambridge right up the road from MIT. So it had a very strong relationship with MIT. I was just giving some background on Arthur D. Little. He was a guy who had been involved in ways of really cooking up really bizarre ways to create mayhem Mm -hmm. already. And then he got in, in, in touch with the sort of the World War II's king of creative mayhem, who was <laughs> Vannevar Bush, right? who was the guy who really started off the German warfare program in World War II and, mm-hmm. and also was in charge, more or less, of the atomic bomb development and all. So the two of them had a correspondence, which I looked at in, in the Library of Congress, because the Vannevar Bush papers are there. And Stevenson is saying, we want to get together. We need to have a new symposium, a new set of meetings about government policy having to do with unconventional weapons. And mm-hmm. they met, and all through early 1950, they met, and they talked about the fact that we have to change this policy. We have a huge threat. We have a numerically superior enemy. We have the Soviet Union and China. They're both communist and there's huge armies and we can never hope to win over those armies. So we have to have new creative weapons and they can be chemical weapons and they can be biological weapons. And that's when they wrote this report that ended up being called the Stevenson Report after this bat guy, the bat flaming napalm vest bat guy, Earl Stevenson, mm-hmm. then is the guy whose his name is given to the Stevenson Report, which was the most influential report. And it came out a few days after the uh, Korean War began. And it said, mm-hmm. the United States must not be limited to a retaliatory use. The United States must be entitled to use any weapon in its arsenal because these wars that are coming any day now are going to be gigantic wars and we have to be able to win over a superior uh, army. And so that, that's why, why I got into that. So it's, it's it, it, yeah. So anyway, biological warfare um, is part of it, but it's also just this instinct and a sort of panicked instinct to find, to look at any weapon, chemical weapons, biological weapons. It's a very disinformational propaganda, anything that will confuse, sicken, or harm a numerically superior enemy. Well, let's talk about the confusion part later, because there's there's quite a bit about the attempts to confuse about this. But it does seem that the basic question is: Should we, you know, speaking for the USA, should we, the USA, start using germ warfare because they're going to do it first, and then that quickly morphs into: Should we do it first? Mm. I mean, that's. Of what that that's what I see sort of brimming under the surface as I piece together the history in this book. Do you think that's right? That it sort of trans transmuted between we better learn about it because they might do it to us, and then that and that quickly turns into hey, we could do it. Yes, and I think it all comes out of the pressure cooker of World War II, and one of the shockers that I discovered and write about in one diary entry is Project Sphinx, which happened in the late stages of World War II. A lot of men had died in the Pacific uh, and these islands, and there were a group of people in Washington that thought that the best way to, to deal with the tremendous carnage that was happening was to use gas 
um, mm-hmm. more, uh, actual um, phos- I, I, all the different gases that they had. They had something like five different kinds. And they wrote up an elaborate plan that would make it easier to triumph over Japan. And, and it involved the gassing of the Japanese mainland of Tokyo, Osaka, mm-hmm. and some number of other cities. And this uh, proposal, which was written by the Chemical Warfare Service, and was something that was kept utterly secret for something like 50, more than 50 years. It was a guy, Norman Polnar, I think it was, who finally got wind of it somehow and put in a Freedom of Information Act request, and they got this plan back from World War II, and they wrote it, wrote about it, and it's just... Um, it's just an, uh, it was going to cause 5 million deaths initially and then, but, and 5 million injuries. And it was going to be, there were going to be these refresher gas attacks. And so you realize the the level of incredible, um, distorted, damaged rage that these warriors are in by the time we're, we've reached 1945. Long wars make people more savage, right? So they are really, they have, they are in anguish. They've watched thousands of American draftees die all over the place. And the newspapers are saying it. You know, the Chicago Tribune rather famously had an editorial, you can cook them better with gas. The idea was that, that, that why aren't we using this? We've, we're making all these potent chemicals and we're not using them. So that level of insane desire to to cause harm then has sort of overhang into the early 50s because the same generals who were back then they were maybe you know colonels or majors or something but all of these military guys move up in rank and they are world war ii veterans some of them very widely highly decorated veterans and now they are populating all the top decision-making positions in the air force and the army and the, the navy and they are people who have been thinking about how to kill vast numbers of right. you know civilians for a long time so the fact that it's now using germs is not that strikingly novel to them but it is yeah. a, it is novel to us because we didn't know how sophisticated how widespread this program was for a long long time and we still don't know, and many people will not know until they read your book, and then they will know, because I did not know. I didn't know two weeks ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, let, you know, let, let's try to, you know, to just summarize it for anybody who might not have the time to read the book, the upshot of your research, even with all the redactions and all the, you know, all the information you were not able to get is that despite the um, very comfortable cliche that the United States would never deal with germ warfare, the United States and the CIA has a long history of especially research into germ warfare and where where it's questionable and where your book is exploring the unknown is to what extent these methods were actually used, especially, say, in Korea. Right, um, especially in Korea, the the uh, the question that that I began with was a question that I encountered in a book by two Canadian historians, uh, Edward Hagerman, Stephen Endicott, who became friends of mine 
um, as I got more caught up in this. But they wanted to know whether the United States had, as the Chinese and the Russians and the North Koreans charged, used biological weapons. They also said they used chemical weapons, but used biological weapons during the Korean War. That was the basic question. And they wrote a book that was an amazing book that happened to benefit from a giant declassification project that had just happened at the National Archives. And so they had all of this new information. So it's a very dense, uh, amazing book with all kinds of documentary revelations in it. Um, and they were pilloried for it, and they were savagely reviewed, and they were really nice guys, not only nice guys, but good historians, and were very careful and cautious, and mm -hmm. I was impressed by them. So what, I, what they found, what they charged was that there was a, a program, a, an attempt to use these weapons on North Korea and the part of China that's close to North Korea during mm -hmm. the Korean War. So that's the basic question. So how do you find out whether that is true or not? You have to look at the available documents and look at what the Chinese said and look at what the Americans said. And that's a part of what this book does is look at the whole controversy. It became the biggest Cold War controversy, especially in 1952 and 1953. And it was a program that was so bewildering because it... It, there were two phases of it. And the first was that the, suddenly, out of the blue, it seemed, the North Koreans said that when the Americans made their historic retreat in November of 1950 from the north of Korea, because the Chinese had counterattacked, when they did that, they left behind diseases. This was the mm -hmm. this was the charge that they made. They made the charge to the United Nations, and they made it through diplomatic channels, and they made it in press releases and radio shows. And it was very, um, it it was, it was very detailed and very bizarre. And it got tiny coverage in the United States. People saying, you know, that the uh, commies charge American planes dropped grasshoppers and bed bugs, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of, they used a kind, a kind of ridicule, but you, an understandable ridicule because it sounded so strange. And then, then that all went away. And there, that, whatever the Chinese were fussing about and the, and the North Koreans, they stopped. And then it started again in 1952, in the early months of 1952. And that's when it blew up into this gigantic propaganda battle. Just for somebody who's not going to read this book, let me just tell you how I think it turns out. I think there was, in fact, a very small program run by special forces in 1950. There's a report of people running around with boxes, uh, mm -hmm. masks on. They're look, they're behaving very oddly. There's an odd set of vehicles, and they run around flinging these feathers out of out of these sort of boxes that would hold. Sort of refrigerated boxes or something like that. Infected feathers, feathers infected feathers, and and then and following this event, um, that's when the Chinese started complaining that this that these mysterious diseases, including what they called smallpox, appeared. And then and then there was in fact a a very much studied now studied epidemic that happened that killed American soldiers that was called Korean hemorrhagic fever or epidemic hemorrhagic fever. Mm -hmm. And this is when it gets really interesting because it was all, but it was renamed that 
by the Americans. But what it was actually called was Songo fever. And it was a it was a disease that the Japanese germ warriors had had studied intensively during World War II and had had in fact weaponized it by passing through not only experimental animals but by passing through prisoners because they they did a lot of unthinkably awful awful uh, human experimentation. So these Japanese scientists who it's been exhaustively chronicled all this actually happened were then pardoned and hidden and and actually paid by the United States to consult on germ warfare matters. Then mysteriously, in late in 1950, first communist soldiers, and then in, in the early months of 1951, American soldiers start falling sick of this horrible disease that turns out to be Sango fever, mm-hmm. which is the same disease that the Japanese studied. Then they had in their employ this guy named Kitano Masaji, who was the same germ warrior scientist who had been part, first done the best written papers on Songo fever. So, and, and the final thing that just sort of is mind-blowing is that the way the disease appeared in Korea is indicative not of a, of a normal progression of an epidemic, but of, of something else, because they were very small foci of infection that went all along the middle oh. of Korea, all along the basically the the parallel the parallel that divides north and south korea as if they were creating a sort of um belt DM- of yeah. disease and and, and as, as if they're replicating the dmz in other words they right. their demilitarized zone is a belt and this is a belt of disease right that's how and it's american epidemiologists who call it a belt of disease and talk about these narrowly defined foci of infection so the question is, how did it get there? And then, then there's this report of that by a British soldier of this mysterious thing that he saw happen, where people were flinging feathers. So that I think that actually is a a, demonst- a, a truly more than likely very probable effort by American forces in a war zone to cause death via germs. That, yeah. that actually happened. Okay, then the second one, though, um, it gets much more complicated because there were, in, in 1952, the, the Chinese and the North Koreans began this really bizarre series of radio protests and protests to the UN, United Nations and all sorts of places saying, American planes are dropping insects on us. Mm-hmm. Not only insects, but voles, field voles, m- mice, sort of not mice, but voles. And they, they said that 700 voles fell from the sky after, after a plane. And you think, mm-hmm. if you're making up a charge, are you going to sit around a table and say, I know what we'll do. We'll say that they, they dropped clams, uh, clams and vole and mice and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of weird um, insects from the sky. They'll, we'll say that. And some of the insects will be insects that nobody has ever said carry weapons. And so right. I, I think that this was what's called a deception operation that was run by the um, CIA, essentially, that was a way of creating fear that uh, a germ warfare attack was happening. But was, I mean, like a bluff, right? A it's, bluff, it, yeah. 
Yeah, it's basically a something designed for the so-called enemy to find and report so as to ridicule the enemy because it's such a ridiculous sounding idea. Right, right. and this was part of this um, psychological warfare plan that was used ridicule as a way of diminishing the threat of communism by, by saying that they're not, I mean, they're, they're crazy. They're making up these fantastic, bizarre charges. And this was repeated endlessly in the, in, you know, editorials in the New York times and stuff saying just sinking so low as to make up these foul, foul tales of, 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 but what it is, what, what sort of breakthrough for me was in the, in the Truman library, I'm going through some documents, some files that it, have had layers of declassification and there'd been another series of declassifications. And I came to this cover and deception plan from that very time. And it, it was a plan. It, it wasn't about germs. It was about spreading the rumor that a belt of radioactive dust, it was a radio, radiolog, radiological bomb had spread mm. or radiological spray had covered a whole area rendering it impassable that was the rumor that the the cia's was charged with spreading in this mm -hmm. plan this was a plan that had many many different components there was a state department component and air force component but the cia's plan was to was 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 some of these things and they gradually were declassified and i so i came across this part and it all sounded so much like what the chinese were saying except that you had to substitute uh, radioactive dust, you had to substitute little tiny bugs, you know, and, um, and this is what actually, I think, really, literally, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> happened, is that they thought, well, okay, if we, if we spread this rumor that there's a, that there's a, a radioactive belt right up there near, this is near the Chinese border, nobody will be able to verify it, because it's no, it's impossible to see dust you know it falls yeah. and you can say well some we saw some dust coming down from a plane and then we hear from these rumor sources that it's radioactive but it doesn't work right but if you drop something that actually on the snow because it was snowy when the, the when these leaflet bombs were dropped that hops out of these bombs and are, are hopping around these little tiny creatures of all sorts. There were there were flies of various kinds, strange flies that they'd never seen before, and uh, mm -hmm. all all sorts of little tiny things. That that is something visible. So I think somebody thought, aha, well let's do it like this. We they they complained about this germ attack back in uh, the late that happened. They said back in 1950, and it all died down. But let's let's frighten them again with uh, with some real and let's just load everything we've got in these these bombs. They were their bombs are called five hundred pound bombs, but they just are big hollow metal shells and they put they use them for leaflets, but you can also use them for other things and they'd study it. But so what was sort of the breakthrough was that plan that's on paper that's in the Truman Library that I found and photographed, and and also reading the scientific papers of the people who are working in the laboratories in Japan, the Americans, because Japan was mm -hmm. under an American occupation. And they were writing about these tiny insects and wolf spiders and all the things that the, 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 the uh, Chinese complained that the Americans 
were dropping on them, all these bizarre things, including the voles, the field mice, were all part of the, were all in the lab menageries in the big laboratories in Japan that were devoted to studying tropical diseases. And so I, I just think what happened was they took, they cleaned out their springtails and their their wolf spiders and their weird flies and all of the all of the things that would and and their voles and they just put them in bombs and dropped them and then they spread the rumor that it was a germ attack and the and it terrified the communists and it caused this enormous convulsion of fear which is very relevant for right now because you know w- what we're talking about a country that is the only country on the planet that has been demonstrably the victim of a germ attack. Not the one I'm talking about, because my, my account of things is controversial and it is not proven. But the a- attack by the Japanese, everyone accepts the fact that the, the Japanese army used the Chinese as experimental victims in, in germ warfare programs. So this, this country has been through it. And so now, and now we're part of this new mess in uh, out of Wuhan. But so um, that is uh, well, that's a long, strange trip. Thank you, Nicholson. And indeed, it is a long, strange trip and a long, sad trip. I was almost going to use that cue from Nicholson Baker and end this episode with a Grateful Dead song, but this verse from a Rage Against the Machine song seems to fit the episode better. This was part one of a two-part interview, and next month we'll be talking more to Nicholson Baker about his new book, Baseless, and also about anti-war activism in general and pacifism, and where we find the hope that keeps us going. So please tune in again next month. Until then, we really appreciate it if you'll give this podcast a good rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you're listening to it, because giving us a good rating does help us get the word out and get more listeners for this podcast. Thanks for being part of the movement, and we'll see you again next month.